Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Dano Says So. Um, today is a little bit different or considerably different than almost every episode that I've done so far. Every time, you know, I've had a conversation this year with people who I have kind of a shared background with, we talk about how the pandemic is affecting our lives because it's impossible to ignore. But by and large, we all sit there and we admit that we know nothing about this kind of thing and that we're basically talking out our asses and doing our best to figure it out. That's not going to be the, the case with today's guest. Uh, Alexia Exarchos does know what she's talking about, and uh, I'm going to let her explain to you why that's true. Alexia, thank you for doing this. Sure. Thanks for having me. I'm not, I'm not certain of, like, you know, whatever. I could babble. So, um, yeah, so I have a background in epidemiology, um, a lot of people had, before this pandemic thought, you know, an epidemiologist was like the study of skin. Now we know it's <laughs> not. So I, I think the number that's one, probably true. Yeah, It'll totally. The, the one, the number one question people used to ask me when I said I was an epidemiologist, they'd be like, oh, you, so you study skin. No. Right. Um, so anyways, I have my, I started public health before I went to graduate school. Um, I worked with um, homeless youth on an HIV and hepatitis study in San Francisco. And um, that really inspired me to think more about public health because to me, public health is about, you know, community and, and has like a socialist, dare I say it, kind of perspective to me. Mm -hmm. um, and so I went to NYU. Um, I have uh, an international community health uh, my MPH, Master of Public Health in commun International Community Health. I studied in South Africa um, in international epidemiology. And then that led me to my first um, job uh, at, actually in Washington State Department of Health for the State Department um, running uh, HIV and tuberculosis. So specifically infectious disease um, epidemiology uh, studies there, uh, fun fully funded through the CDC. So the way it's organized is the CDC um, gives money to states and territories to conduct uh, disease surveillance, which I think that people are now learning about more through um, COVID-19. Um, so I ran the HIV and tuberculosis, analyzed all that data for the state, et cetera. Um, and then from there, uh, I moved back to California and uh, worked for, I did some biotech stuff in HIV, but then went back to um, the state health department and helped them um, run, collate all the data they had on viral hepatitis and um, analyze all that and um, come out with the first ever um, report on viral hepatitis in the state, an epidemiologic uh, surveillance report there. And then I moved to UCSF to do international epi um, H, a huge population-based HIV trial in Uganda and Kenya, um, and pretty much went as high as I could there. And then uh, instead of going back to the State Department, I decided to transition back to biotech, and now I'm in oncology. Cool. There I now. sell beer and yell into microphones. This should be good. <laughs> the long-standing long trend on this uh, podcast of me calling in people that are smarter than I am is obviously going to go well again today. Um, before we get into some yeah. details and where I kind of ask you to educate me and anybody who's watching this about epidemiology and about the current situation and about what maybe your informed take on the realities of it are, I'm very curious emotionally, psychologically, how public response to this pandemic has been hitting you. Uh, uh, so 
you're saying the public's response is that what you said basically on a gut level how do you yeah. feel how do you process the way the world not even the world the way this country has dealt with its arts exactly exactly so it's it's um it's extremely shocking in in the slightest if i can be not as dramatic but it's to say the least it's extremely shocking i don't think you can ask anybody who's in, been in public health run um been in disease outbreaks regardless of what the disease is um been on investigations done contact tracing in the public health perspective i don't think anyone thought that the this country would respond so poorly as it has and hence here we are um that to me has been continuously shocking um also from a cdc perspective so you got to think in 2002 when i was working on state studies cdc was the uh, you know the epitome of of disease surveillance and uh public health and and had the tenets of how we deliver uh and protect the public's health in any given community and so for the cdc to come out and and be so off was is very shocking even to this day even their new guidance of oh you don't have to test asymptomatic people is insane and it's, it's, not, it's not it's not motivated by a different perspective is it it's it's it motivated so, by pressures isn't it yes and so here's what people don't understand unfortunately the way that it works in this particular country and most countries is that uh, the CDC is funded and uh, and the the, C, the head of the CDC is appointed by the person who's the GOP who's ever in political power. So what you're seeing is a representation of deniers, of disease deniers. So directly from the federal government, um, the person you have running the CDC is not qualified to do so. He, he and it shows. And so he's getting, so when, when, when it comes top down from the White House, he's not there to then say, or from HHS, he's not there then to say, no, that's incorrect. This is what we do. We need to do. Because when Obama left office, a lot of those people and that infrastructure that was created, um, and held up and, um, funded, uh, left and so you have all these people going to universities now universities are great and academics are great because you don't you're not held by a political standard or message but you also then don't have the power to inflict inflict uh change or policy that would guide us nationally nationally where we need to be see that's the problem i mean the fundamental problem is this is not a state issue this isn't even a national issue. This is a global issue. And we could really certainly, the federal government can certainly, should certainly listen to and take notice from the biotech industry, the people who are running like vaccines and looking at tr treatments. We are sharing things like we have never done before um, across companies, competitive landscapes, et cetera, for the sole purpose of trying to save lives and get me this medicine to patients fast as fast as possible and and i don't see us doing that politically well so it's funny in my head usually when i listen to what someone's saying i think what question will that lead to next that sort of leads to questions about prognosis or pre predictive things about the future which i want to get into a little bit later so yeah. i'm going to kind of sidestep where that just took me and sort of ask you for a little bit of a of a of a Public, public information announcements, trying to think of the phrase that I'm looking for. But 
By and large, what do you say is the biggest public misconception about this virus or about virus containment? Hmm. In other words, what is the big mistake going on out there? Well, I mean, the, the number one is that people think it's just a flu. I think that is mm -hmm. huge. I think that people don't understand or that what it looks like in China or in you know, Europe is going to be what it looks like in the U.S. I, I heard early long people were like, oh, you know, you're less than 65. You're going to be fine. Well, that's true in China. First of all, they didn't report asymptomatic cases. So you were only looking at severe cases. So it's like a tip of an iceberg. We never really truly understood the disease burden. And that's just how China operates. They don't share information. Um, it's very hard to get information. But that said, what we got wasn't the true picture. And then also... People's health status in China, where it initiated, is very different than the demographic and, and health breakdown of us in this country. And I've always said that, you know, if you have comorbidities, we have higher rates of hypertension, diabetes, um, you know, all of those things that factor into whether or not you have severe disease, it's going to look very differently. So we're going to have younger people that have this severe disease and die here. And I think that's what people didn't understand. They thought, oh, it's just the old people. The old people have to stay inside. I can go outside. Well, and, and so, sorry, so there's that. And then the two, the another main, main spreader of the disease is being asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic, unlike the flu, which is, you know, you get a disease onset at zero to one to three days. You, you know you're sick. Here, we don't know if you're sick. You may never get sick, or you may get sick in 14 days, 14 to 21 days. Think about how many people you it's can get in that time span. Sorry, go on. Oh, no, I said that's a massive window. Exactly. And so that, so, so the good thing about this pandemic is it's not as deadly. The good thing about no, this I'm pandemic. Say it. No, I, I've talked to all my doctor friends early on, because early on, because once it came here and I realized that we have completely botched a natural response and people were not getting it, mm -hmm. I started talking to them and they were like, "Look, just remember that this could be much deadlier. This could be a SARS where you get it, you're dead, regardless of age, regardless of comorbidity, regardless mm -hmm. of all these other things. This is not this. So this is playing out in a way where we need to shore up and remember that public health infrastructure is key into stopping the spread of this of, of pandemics or epidemics in the country. So it's like it could be much deadlier. We could be talking about a 10% fatality rate. I mean, and we're not. And we because we don't truly know the number infected too. So it, the, the case fatality rate could go could be much lower, but you know that you, that you have to combine with how we report deaths also. So lots of underreporting could be happening. So anyway, um, but the the idea that you're asymptomatic, you could be through the duration of your disease or pre-symptomatic for such a duration, and you're mostly infected before before you have symptoms. Right, the the earlier onset of when you have disease, I'm not symptomatic but I just got the disease, I'm more likely to spread it. Those two combinations are much different than like a flu. Mm -hmm. people, people basically try and speak about it in language they understand when it's something they have no prior experience with. You know, I've, I mean, I caught myself doing that earlier on, early on. Um, before I get to predictive things, which, which is, which is uh, uh, again, where every, every one of these things 
it's leading me to these $800 questions I want to ask you that are probably unfair. But there's a few other things I want to tick off. The framing of this interview, I'm looking at this screen, right? Yeah. You and I are both dark clothes, collared up. There's our, there's our, our empty white faces, right? You and I are both covered in tattoos and know each other decades back as filthy punk rockers primarily. Yes. That to me is interesting because we are politically sympathetic, have had very different life paths, and you have landed in an incredible place. But it puts us in a good place to discuss the politics of this. Yeah. Did you ever at any point in your life in medicine imagine that a disease would be a political football? Or, no. that, or, that, or that public health decisions would be made based on agenda? Yeah. No, and, and, and you know what's funny is recently in interviews, I feel like I'm hearing um, public health experts, people that I've always looked up to, like a Thomas Frieden. He, he actually ran the New York City um, Health Department, then went to CDC. He, and he does, this is his nonprofit now. Of course, he has no political clout because he's in a nonprofit, but if we would just followed him, we'd probably be in a much better place nationally. Anyway, um, they're all saying... I. And I totally agree. No one expected this type of backlash. And I truly think it's because of the leader we have, the lack of leader that we have in office right now. Uh, first of all, the inability to give a unified, sustained message. As the science changes, certainly the message tweaks, but the uniformity of how to curtail and contain disease outbreaks, it's not new. Yeah, and, sure. and, I should, and I should think it wouldn't be subjective. I mean, their opinions, no. their research, but no. it's made it's made subject to interpretation in the public discourse, which is absurd. You can't, yes, you can't, but, can't sit around and discuss whether or not two plus two equals four or five. It equals four. Right. You know, right. But not, but not in the current dialogue. Right, because I think yeah, and I think that because politically we're in such an environment where. Think about how schizophrenic it is. Your president comes up and says one thing, and then within three hours is tweeting something totally different. So, so like people don't have a consistent message, and so they're thinking, question everything, and then they're just gonna follow. What, he didn't wear a mask forever. Like he, bought, he looked when he finally spat out some White House guidelines. Then he mocked people who were who were adherents of his own suggestions. Exactly. So think about you as somebody, you know, what kind of message you're sending to the drastic, the basic American people versus, you know, we have our opinions, we have informed, we go out and seek our own answers. But these people who are looking, to, who are scared and maybe looking for leadership, they're not going to get it. And so what it does is I think it intrinsically tells you to question everything. It isn't new, though. I need to let you know there was an anti-mask uh, contingent in San Francisco during the 1918 flu outbreak, um, the Spanish flu outbreak. So there are there is always a contingent of people that will rebel. Well, what was the resulting effect, and how did it? You know, how was it? How was it circumvented? Because, or was it? Or was that a far larger tragedy? Or was that a far larger tragedy than I understand? No, it wasn't. And I think the difference is because they we had poli policies in place or put policies in place that were supported at multiple levels so that these voices weren't louder than they needed to be versus what you see in what's going down in Portland night right now, um, how that is just getting worse and worse and worse because, you know, of how he flame inflames everything. So in curtailing the damage done by 1918, that's that's the time frame I think we're talking about. Yeah. Anti-mask movement was a part of that. The fact that the 
government were not primary partners in the anti-masking? No, Sorry, I, mean, I can't. The government, what you, what... the government are the megaphone. They are the primary partners yes. in anti-mask philosophy. I'm hoping yes. that wasn't the case in 1918. I mean, I don't remember. I, I'd have to look it up. I don't, okay. I'm not an expert in that. But I do remember seeing, wow, well, here we are again in San Francisco specifically where there was a contingent of people. I, I think they tried to say that that was what a part, they tried to link perhaps the re-upswing, but I think that had more to do with people were indoors, the war was over. I mean, you couldn't really link it directly to an anti-mask. There were a lot of confluence in there okay. um, that you couldn't say specifically. And I don't, so I don't pretend to know the, I can't link the two. Fair enough. Yeah. All right. Um, best advice, best practices right now on an individual basis, household by household. It's really, honestly, it's people ask me all the time. It's really simple. It has not changed. Uh, it's an airborne disease. Wear a mask when you're outside. You wanna be outside. So the worst situations, the super spreader events, which are accounting for most of our disease is indoors, poor circulation, no circulation. So like, um, you know, congregate settings, um, recircus, recirculated air, no mask. So I need to wear a mask at a minimum. You need to wear a mask, close contact. So you want to stay further apart and try and be outdoors and don't be inside your exposure. You know, if you're up over two to three hours indoors, your risk, your risk goes up. So think about like going through the grocery store. Don't be in there more than an hour. Keep it moving. Just wear your mask, wash your hands. It's, it's not, it hasn't changed. That's the thing. And it's sad to me, you know, it's, it, it's devastating to me that people don't want to do these little things to help protect those that cannot protect themselves in the, in the, what I mean by that is those that ha are immunocompromised. And if they got that, this, they would die like my parents. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, there, my mom had pneumonia last year, hospitalized, did, almost didn't make it. She gets this, her lungs are done. I've mentioned it on too many of these episodes because I have to worry about my own redundancies because I'm the one recurring factor in all these. But every time this comes up, I reflect upon the fact that I used to see my father every other week at a minimum. And we yeah. didn't really have a relationship until I was in my 40s and he was in his 70s. Now I'm in my 50s, he's in his 80s. And I have not seen him since February because of this. Yeah. I, work, I work in the restaurant business, which to me, I might as well just roll around in the shit. It just terrifies yeah. me. Yeah, because you're exposed to so many people. I would ask you something. So you're, you're a mom, yeah? Yeah. Does the family, do you, you know, because now there's outdoor dining in a lot of places, and I believe even in the Bay Area. Yeah. Do you dine around strangers? Do you take partake in that, or do you pretty much keep the unit, you know, insular? So we... I mean, we haven't sat outdoors here um, and did outdoor dining. I would take something to go and probably go to like a, a more spacious place, like a park maybe. I wouldn't right. probably take my kids because I can't control where they're running. Right. Um, but I agree. I mean, the, the, the kids, my, my parents live for the grandkids and they haven't been able to see them since February. My parents have been locked down because, you know, I'm their daughter and I'm explaining this to them. Right. Um, and they're taking it very seriously. Um, but yeah, and you know, if I could just say one last thing, or if we need to wrap up, but no, no, I, no, we got, we got, we, we got. I'm basically going to ask you about the future in a minute, which puts you in an impossible position. Yeah, I don't have a crystal ball. I would right. love one, um, but you know what's so fascinating, for lack of a better word, or not fascinating about this 
the intersection of this pandemic and um, Black Lives Matter, I think that is really key. I think people are really getting, like one of the things in public health that people talk about, and historically since you know I've been doing it, is like we look at disease burden and we say, oh, you know, Hispanics are more likely, two, two to three times Blacks and Hispanics are more likely to get diabetes. As if their race puts them at more of that risk, right? Well, that's not true. And I feel like because of the BLM movement, because COVID is predominantly impacting black and brown communities, we're finally getting that it's not about race that puts you more at risk. It's all, it's actually racism. It's systemic racism. Is it, it's living, is it living situation? Is that essentially what you're saying? Yeah, yeah living situation, access. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's class. And in this country, class is on racial lines because mm -hmm. we're a racist country. So, so yeah, if I have to, I live in a, 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 um, a house that has a ton of people, I have to travel for work, I don't have, in order to you know, provide for my family, I don't have a car, I have to get on multiple buses. My exposure versus me who works from home, I just transfer down to my office, is much less than somebody who has to do all these different things that, that expose them in so many different ways, mm -hmm. which is an, a reflection of race and class, access to healthy foods, cost of food, so uh, trust of medical, you know, medical uh, science and medicine. Um, so going to the doctor later because a I can't afford it, or b I don't trust them because I have major reasons not to, because they've tested on me um, and my people in a way, not mine, but black people in a way that was not acceptable and very detrimental or they mm -hmm. created policies that you know made me less likely to um, be able to ha have children. So it's just, it's really interesting. And I feel like if anything, it needed to happen at this time. I feel like BLM and, and, and what came out so largely because of this pandemic, because people were home and, and it is impacting black and brown people predominantly but we see that with many diseases that's not nothing anything new but the perfect but the perfect storm of bad situations casted in a starker light or given higher visibility yeah 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 okay and we're finally saying systemic racism is the cause not your race mm -hmm. which yeah no i get it not genetics it's excess yes. basically access to resources exactly yeah so the unfair part is not actually the way the way i was framing it is not really what it is but someone with your perspective, someone with your access to information and your established understanding of disease control, the next six months to a year, are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? Are you terrified? Okay, so here's the deal. Mm -hmm. Everything I've said about this has mm -hmm. not happened because policy has not happened in the way I thought it would. I really thought, oh, everyone shuts down, we shelter in place. That's what you do when you can't contain an outbreak. Everyone hunkers down for a couple weeks, a month, and then you go back out slowly. And then when hot spots arise, contact trace, you lock them down. Doesn't mean the whole country or state needs to lock down just this section because we have all the policy and infrastructure in place. Well, that didn't happen. So I'm gonna say that my hope is, and I do know that we have two vaccines coming up 
um, that are hoping to be approved by the end of 2020. Whether that, how long that takes to roll out, I know development is happening now, which is unprecedented. It usually happens after approval. Um, I do feel, I do think that when we go into fall, winter, uh, cases are gonna tick up. Why? Because we're inside and we're in the holidays. And so people are closer together. I think the disease would spread. Um, but I am hopeful that a vaccine is coming and the majority of us will take it, whether or not it's, you know, it's not gonna be 100% effective. Even if you get 50% efficacy, I think that's a good thing because it will decrease at some level transmission. So, um, so I'm hopeful that, and again, I've been wrong the whole time. So don't quote me. Alexia, you're not telling me when I can play shows again. Anyway, exactly. Well, you're on like last on the list because you're physical and you're screaming and yelling and you're indoors. Yeah. But anyway, oh, I didn't mean I'm to, hopeful I, I was for spring. Interrupting your kind of throat without the stupid joke. I apologize. No, no, it's okay. No, but my hope, my my hope is that things start to look more positive in spring. But that really relies on us having the infrastructure in place to be able to contract and suppress hot spots. Mm -hmm. And we don't have that right now. And we need increased testing. Universal testing is paramount. I think if we got at-home testing that could be done within 15 minutes, and I can find out if I'm positive in 15 minutes every day, my likelihood to go out and spread that now drops substantially. So think about that in terms of number of cases. So that's huge. So that's why I don't understand this new CDC guidelines. You don't test That's ridiculous. Well, I have, I have sort of a question about that. I was, I was getting ready to wrap up, and, and we're, uh, you'll, I'll be able to get you out of here pretty quickly, not that you've been tugging at the chain, but... No, I'm uh, sorry, yeah, I could go but, on. But uh, no, 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 I'm, I'm digging it. Uh, what I was going to ask you, I'd always heard that the fastest important vaccine or the length of the process was optimistically, typically in vaccine development, something like three or four years. It's actually five to 10. Okay, so is what going on a potential reality simply yes. because of pooled resources and international reaction so, to it? So it's not, it's not yeah. popping pockets, not pie in the sky? No, and funding. I mean, definitely governments are funding fast tracking. I don't, I don't remember the, the, the phrase they're using. It's like, I don't know, it's some silly Holy phrase. shit, the world's on fire? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, okay. yeah. You know how those, the operation da-da-da. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, no, and I, I truly, I mean, they are still, for the two main ones, Moderna and AstraZeneca, they're still, you know, they're in phase three, which is your last phase. Um, and they're they're finding good clinical outcomes in multiple age groups, which is important. Um, so, yeah, my hope is that we have it more readily available by the spring. Whether or not it's the end, I'm sure better vaccines will come. But to have something initially like this, a, this fast is unprecedented, but it is the collaboration between governments and biotechs sharing all the information so that everyone can move ahead. So here's the story. I'm about to wrap this up before I do put a little bit of a cap on things. Is there a piece of information or perspective you feel like my questioning hasn't gotten to yet? Because hell, I haven't seen you in at least a decade, and if not more, and I don't want to waste the opportunity. So if you've got if you've got anything left in the gun, fire now. Otherwise, uh let me wrap it up. No, but um, I one more thing. You already asked the question, and I I didn't get there. Um, I want to add one thing that we can do, mm -hmm. which is very simple: is everyone should get their flu shot. That that's oh. a no-brainer. 
there. So the one thing that you can do other than wear your mask, I mean, that's the beauty of this is we can literally make an impact by personal choices that we make. Wear your mask. Well, so to get your flu shot simply to avoid the flu or to keep yourself less vulnerable or? So. Because I'm one of these dumbasses who probably hasn't had a flu shot in 20 years. Well, okay, so it's uber important for you to get the flu shot. One, so you don't get it, but the more important thing for this year is so that we keep people like you out of the hospital so we have space for the COVID patients. Okay. All right. So we don't overburden our health system. There we go. I found my way to some I found my way to some guilt in this. Fantastic. All yeah. right. Well, listen, I am beyond thrilled that I uh, that I asked you to do this. And contrary to your concerns, this couldn't be more interesting or more fascinating. I think people will love it. Uh, my close with you would be that there will be news, there will be evolutions that will either be horrifying or happy situations. Could I ask you to do this again in a few months? Yeah, yeah, totally. Let's talk again. And, All right. And, let, uh, and, I, and yes, because we can find out whether I'm wrong again or not. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> All right. Well, good to go. Thank you so much, Alexia. You too. It was great to talk to you. Bye-bye. Right, Bye. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the One Hit Thunder or were nothing more than a One Hit Blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh, and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods.